You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the, Father, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you, sh- you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am speaking not of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Thank you for, through your servant, John, and by the power of the Spirit, encapsulating this incredible story, that we might learn from it, that we might be transformed by it, that we might be cleansed by it. Father, we pray that you would do all of these things now tonight for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I haven't met you yet. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We have been marching right through the gospel according to John. We're now through chapter 13. When you get, when you get your first job, it's exactly that. It's your first job, right? I'm not sure that I know of anyone today who has their same job that they had when they were 15. You might still work at the same place that you started at when you were 15, but you don't have that same job, right? You got promoted up within the ranks. Even when you're, or when you're 15, you don't, you don't like walk into a law firm and you say like, 
I saw that you had an opening for a prosecutor, so I'm here to take the job or something. Or like Eric Layer didn't walk into the ad agency when he was a teenager and say, I'm ready to be your account executive. Most kids, even sharp, mature teenagers, don't have the skills or experience to just walk in and do these jobs well. So what is the nature of the kinds of jobs that we tend to get when we were teenagers, or perhaps you teenagers here this evening, what are the types of jobs that you have now? They're generally low-paying jobs that most adults don't want to do anymore. Now, don't hear me wrong. These, these are jobs that we had, and many of you still have, that are incredibly important. Like if 14-year-old Kyle Stevens didn't start bussing tables at K-Bob's, well, then, uh, then we wouldn't have clean tables. I never have gone to a K-Bob's. I never even heard of K-Bobs until a couple of days ago. If Dave Ortega didn't work at Burger King when he was a teenager, or Patrick Gozier didn't work at Chick-fil-A when he was 15, well, people wouldn't have had french fries. We need those people. A couple of you worked with cars, washing them, changing tires. Several of you worked or still do at vet clinics, cleaning out some pretty gross uh, cages, taking these animals out for walks. This was Marcy's first job. Many of you worked filing papers and receipts of various kinds in different kinds of offices. You were lifeguards. You were go-kart operators. Clint, awesome, first job. Uh, retail clerks, stockers in a hardware store. Karen Avery, her first job was working in a hardware store because she is hardcore. Uh, this is really great work, but none of you that I talked to this week still currently, if you're adults, still have those jobs. Though I wouldn't mind seeing Travis Sanchez still sitting up there on the lifeguard stand. Uh, as Americans, we are almost bred to think that you need to keep working as long and as hard as possible so that you can get as many promotions and raises as possible. And promotions and raises and advancements and ambition, none of these are in and of themselves bad things. But subconsciously, I think that most of us want to keep advancing and climbing until we have no one left to serve. Service jobs are difficult because people are difficult. So we want to get out of those kinds of jobs and into the levels of management. More people under us and fewer people above us. And if we're really fortunate, then we can just reach the top and perhaps even start our own business so that we're beholden to no one. America. Right? Nobody gets to tell me what to do. And while I'm so thankful for the American work ethic and its many good effects on the rest of the world, in John 13, Jesus comes and he turns the American, and not just American, but the human worldview, right on its head. That the God of the universe, the creator of all things, including the people who ignore him and rebuff him, the creator has come not that his subjects would serve him, but that he might serve them. This is incredible. We saw an unexpected king and an unexpected kingdom last week, and there's a sense in which that could be the theme of the entire Bible. Uh, an upside-down kingdom where power is actually weakness and humility is actually to know and live like God. Incredible. Well, this week we'll follow this scene through three movements, and we'll keep going with the unexpectedness of all of this. So we'll th see this unfold in an unexpected reversal, expected responses, and then an unexpected commandment. So let's get right into this. An unexpected reversal. Verse 1. 
chapter 13 of the Gospel according to John. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he heard to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This first verse almost acts like a title for what's coming. Not only in this chapter, not only in this room where he'd celebrate this Passover feast, this last supper with his disciples, but for the rest of the book. He's going to love them to the end. This is a title now and what this chapter is even pointing to. He was about to depart from the world, out of the world of darkness, out of the world of opposition to God. But he loved his disciples. He loved his sheep that were in the world. How much? How much did he love them? Well, to the very end. We've seen the love of God throughout this book, and now the hour has come for Jesus to move heaven and earth to win and save his people because of his love for them. So here we are. Even though John describes this meal a bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, this is the same Passover meal that Jesus is instituting as the Lord's Supper. And Jesus already knows As he sits down, he already knows that Judas is here and Judas is going to betray him. Satan, the prince of the darkness that we've seen thus far, is moving. And in the midst of all these chess pieces, being moved and beginning to see the end coming, Jesus stands up from the table. He stands up in the midst of all this. He takes off his outer tunic and then he ties a towel around his waist. This doesn't make much sense to us. My my guess is when you heard Sophia read this, you you didn't even think about it. Uh, But to the disciples in the room, lounging and reclining on the floor, probably around a a U-shaped table, when when he did this, when he tied a towel around his waist, they probably would have sat up, perked up, and perhaps a few of them even audibly gasped at what he had just done. Jesus just had put on the uniform of a household slave. What in the world is he doing? They thought he had just said just a few days earlier in the chapter before, like the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here he is making a fool of himself. He's humiliating himself like a slave. What in the world is he doing? So now in uniform, what does he do? Verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now I know many of you have heard this passage preached perhaps dozens of times. But if you have or you haven't, here's another scene that we just don't have a category for how startling this scene should be. Sandaled men and women, they would have walked around the streets uh, in these days, and they didn't do so in a time of modern plumbing. Like, we can't even imagine what the streets would have been like. I watched a documentary a few years ago about how in the 1850s, the entire city of Chicago had decided that the manure problem on the street from humans and from horses had become so overwhelmingly grotesque that they decided they had to raise the city of Chicago six feet so that they could put plumbing in. So they put like hundreds of giant jack screws under every building in Chicago. Just Google it. It's incredible. And raised every building in Chicago six feet. They raised the entire city of Chicago six feet so that they could get sewers and plumbing underneath it. Why? Because no one wanted to go outside anymore. It was so gross. So much filth on the street. And this is just the way that most human cities have been 
throughout human history. And so it's not just that your sandaled feet were dirty and dusty, as if you walked around Albuquerque with flip-flops on all day. Your feet would get dusty, no doubt. But that your feet were actually filthy, disgusting, like probably smelled horribly. And this is what Jesus stands up to do with his beloved disciples. We have several historical examples from outside the Bible of foot-washing interactions. A a Jewish rabbi, he returned home to wash the feet of his wife, and he wouldn't, or he he returned home, and the wife wanted to wash his feet. And he was like, what are you doing? Like, he would not have it. And she actually took him to the, the, the court system took him to the Sanhedrin to say, I want to do this. This is an honor for me to do this. And they made her do it. Like, if she wanted to do it, then fine. In addition to others, we, of course, saw Mary do this to Jesus' feet two weeks ago in chapter 12. But in any case, washing someone's feet, even voluntarily, no, was degrading, was lowly. But when done voluntarily, it was always done, like Mary and like this wife that I just told you about, by those who were weaker in society to signal their extreme devotion to those who, according to society, were above them. So it would never be done by those who were higher to the lower. This would be an unconscionable act. Like, I'm not sure that we even have an equivalent. Maybe if I had one of you guys over to my house, and then I find you, like, in my bathroom on your hands and knees, like, scrubbing the toilets or something. Like, that would be Maybe even more than that. Like if Queen Elizabeth came to Albuquerque and she wanted to have dinner at my like planked wooden table uh, and then like the queen's gone for like five minutes. Anybody know where she is? And we find the queen of England like on her hands and knees like scrubbing my toilets. What are you doing? Like I should be serving you in this way, not you and you serving me in this way. And this is what Jesus is about to stoop to do. But even as uncomfortable as this must have been for them, it appears that many of the disciples just kind of just sat there and let Jesus debase himself in serving them in this way. But when it gets to Peter, in typical fashion, Peter can't keep his mouth closed. He protests. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? The subtext being, this doesn't make any sense. If anything, we should be washing your feet. We cannot allow this to happen. It's just too much. To which Jesus responds in verse 7 with a hint at what this thing is all about. He says, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter, this thing isn't actually about your dirty feet. You don't get it yet, but you will. But Peter is indignant, perhaps now standing with bald fists. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. We don't know his tone if he was patient and calm, or if he responded uh, with a little amped up uh, intention here in his voice. But Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is emphasizing himself here. It's not that Peter needs to get his feet cleaned. If that's all that were needed, Jesus just could have hired someone to come in and wash everybody's feet while they were lounging around and eating dinner. No, it's not a question of washing, but a question of who is doing the washing Unless Peter allows Jesus to wash. For Peter to even passively participate in receiving this washing. If this does not happen, then he has no share with Jesus. And the word share here is used all over the Bible to mean part of an inheritance. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's talking about different uh, families or tribes receiving their share of the land. It's an, an inheritance term here. 
So Jesus is saying, if I do not wash you, you will not receive the inheritance of life with me, the inheritance of the kingdom. And Jesus here is not for the first time in his human life taking the form of a servant, is he? He hasn't been living as a king his entire life, and then he just decides to, just this one time, this evening, maybe as an illustrative example for them, to serve them in this way, in a humble act. No, his very life has been one of a servant. A few years later, Paul will reflect in Philippians 2. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being being born in the likeness of men. Remember that acorn word picture from last week. Jesus didn't selfishly hold on to the tree, hoarding his divine life just for himself. But no, he detached himself. He detached himself from the place of comfort and security that he might give of his divine life out of love for those that he has come to save. His entire life, taking the form of a human in the first place was all about serving. Unlike other kings and rulers, unlike ourselves, when we come to places of growing power and authority, he came not to be served, but to serve. And while this act of washing is degrading and humiliating, it's nothing compared to where he'll be in just 24 hours. Or Paul will then go on to say in Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. All of this selfless, serving humility is moving somewhere. It's moving to the cross. He would love to the end, taking the place of death, taking the place of judgment, of sin for these disciples, these who he's washing here, and then all of his future sheep who would hear his voice, who would let him wash them to be washed in the cleansing fountain of his blood. All of this, this washing is moving there. It's a pointer. It's a sign preparing for what is to come. So he's saving and he's washing these. As we thought through in chapter 10, Jesus doesn't just go to the cross for some amorphic savability that maybe somebody someday might trust in him and be washed by him. No, he goes to the cross with names. He goes to the cross for his sheep, for Peter here, for John here, for Elena Williamson, and for John Leinberger, for Lauren Ferguson, for Quinn Wingard. He has come to save and to cleanse those whom he loves. And not just in a generic way, that he might wash those who are, are trusting in him. Just, just kind of floating out there amorphously. Like I'm not really sure what it means to be washed by him. But very specifically, with dare I say, very specific pieces of crap on our feet that he has come to cleanse us from. Very specific acts of rebellion. Very specific acts of self-love. Very specific shame. Very specific guilt. He has come to cleanse from those he loves. This extreme devotion. Not the kind of a devotion of a subject to a master, but 
of the master, the king of the people, devoted to his people, devoted to make you clean and to make you his. Just sit in that for a minute. Just revel and swim around in that for a minute. The incredible love of God through Christ for you, that your creator, your eternally glorious God, the one of the universe who has created all things, he has come to serve, has come to save because of his love for you. What heights of love, what depths of peace. And what is the result of that that we we sing often? That when fears are stilled and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, as I sit now and let him do the work, as I sit and allow him to wash and to cleanse, now here in the love of Christ, I stand. This is what gives me meaning in life. This is what gives me confidence is the love of Christ in which I now stand. But Peter doesn't understand this yet. This talk of share of inheritance, though, it gets his attention, perks up his ears. So in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Not just my feet, better go ahead and just wash all of me. Then if this is what's required of me getting an inheritance, I don't want to miss out on anything, so just go ahead and do the whole thing. But Jesus says, if someone shares in his cleansing by faith, he's, he's already washed. Kind of confusingly, in verse 10, he says that, like, if you take a bath this morning, and then your whole body's clean, and then you go out all day, and your feet get dirty, you might need to come home that night, and you might need to clean, clean your feet, but you might not need to uh, clean your whole body again. You're washed, you're cleansed. I think what Jesus is teaching here is that for those who have been initially cleansed by Christ, that cleansing needs never be fundamentally repeated. His cleansing is comprehensive and total. Even though Christ's work in your life will undoubtedly mean that you'll have later sin that will inevitably need ongoing confession and that will need to be cleansed as well. But the comprehensive washing and cleansing of Jesus is total the first time. And all of this goes right along with John's theology in 1 John, the letter that he writes later in the Bible of balancing assurance of salvation with ongoing confession and growing in godliness, of being washed totally and yet still needing to come to Christ for ongoing cleansing. So Jesus says to Peter that he doesn't have to give his entire body a bath. By his accepting of Jesus's loving act of cleansing, he's already entirely clean. And yet at the same time, there is someone here at this meal who has had his feet cleaned by Jesus, but is not cleaned by Jesus. Judas is at the table, and he has gone through this ritual. He's had his feet washed, but nothing has changed. It hasn't meant anything. We're going to kind of jump around for the rest of this chapter so we can see a couple of responses to this whole thing side by side. So we'll now see some expected responses to Jesus's unexpected reversal. Since I didn't have Sophia read past 20, let's begin reading together in verse 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped, it, dipped the morsel, he gave to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Many throughout the centuries have tried to assign a motive for Judas's betrayal. Why in the world would he do this in the end? We're not sure. But what we can say is that Judas had just received the best seminary education possible for three years with the best possible teacher or professor. And he had entirely missed the point. He had missed Jesus. He had gotten loads of good theology and missed Jesus. Perhaps he thinks that he has attached himself to the right kind of leader. He had worked his way up the right kind of corporate religious ladder so that he'd never have to serve another again. And he intended other people to wash his feet. And now here's Jesus, the leader that he's attached himself, and he's debasing himself by washing our feet. And then he's saying that we're to do the same thing. Like, I'm, I'm out. This is, this is too much. But Jesus tells the twelve, he announces now that there is one here that will betray him. And for the first time, we're introduced to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which of all the options, I think has to be John, the son of Zebedee, the author of this book. John will often uh, give himself this pseudonym, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We'll talk more about this name that he gives himself as he keeps referring to himself this way throughout the book. We'll Spend some time on each time that he does this. But of all the things that Jesus had done for him, what does John, if John wants to give himself a pseudonym, what does he identify most with? The disciple whom Jesus taught? The disciple who learned a lot about God? The disciple who, walking with Jesus, had grown in holiness? The disciple who was devoted to Jesus? No, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not implying that Jesus didn't love the others or that he loved John more than the others, but that John's primary identity for himself, the thing that, he, that gave him most meaning in his life as he walked around the streets every day, was that Jesus loved him. More on him as we move throughout the book. But this John, this disciple whom Jesus loved, he's leaning right up next to Jesus and he asks who the betrayer is. Jesus has just announced that someone is going to betray him. And John says, who is it? To which Jesus evidently, I think how I read it earlier, I think is right. He must have whispered this to John. He must have said, it's the guy that I'm about to give this morsel of bread to. Because no one reacts. Like no one asks him a question. And then when Jesus gives the morsel of bread to Judas, no one, they're, they're unclear on why Judas left. So I don't think they heard Jesus say this. But in any case, Jesus gives this morsel of bread to Judas, which is likely the a piece of the bread. The bread that Jesus is passing around is probably the Passover bread. The, the bread that before, just maybe a few minutes earlier, he had taken and he said, this is my body broken for you. He's handing him a piece of this bread representing his body, which would be broken tomorrow night. And he dips the morsel, perhaps in some bitter herbs, and he hands it to Judas. He says, go do what you're going to do 
quickly. And the quickly there in verse 27 is likely comparative, like more quickly, like do more quickly than the way you were planning to do it. One commentator says, if Judas's descent is complete, Jesus is basically saying he may as well get on with his treachery and just be done with it. Let's, let's go. Let's get it going. So Judas accepts. He accepts his fate in his flat-out rejection of Jesus. His flat-out rejection of this upside-down kingdom. He wants nothing to do with power and authority manifesting itself in humility and service. He rejects the kingdom and its king. And yet this is entirely expected because by nature that's the way all of us are. Seeking the promotion of the self over and against the God who's created us and leading us into the way of the kingdom. We don't want anything to do with that kind of king or kingdom left to ourselves. We'll see how Jesus reacts to that, but then at the end of the chapter, we see another, if we're realistic, expected response from one of his other disciples. As Jesus leaves the room, Peter says in verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter, having received the washing of Jesus, now starts apparently kind of puffing his chest in an overconfident but ultimately naive zeal for the Lord. I got this. I'm, I, I, am, I will follow you to the end. We'll consider Peter's actual denial when we get to chapter 18, but neither Judas nor Peter, in an utter and flat-out rejection of Jesus or in a self-trusting over-exuberance, have quite understood the meaning of Jesus' washing. They've received his act of servants. They have received his bread but they have not received his love. Peter, not yet anyway. It won't be until after Jesus is raised from the dead and comes to Peter with forgiveness, with friendship, and with love that Peter will understand the extent to which Jesus has loved him, the extent to which he has washed and cleansed him. But Judas, he, he never will. He never will. He, he leaves, and John told us in verse 30, like in a totally over-the-top kind of a way, yeah, like, okay, yes, John, we get it kind of a way. He says, oh yeah, and it was night. Like we've seen throughout this book the theme of light and darkness, and Judah, or John is saying in a not-so-subtle way, Judas has gone into the night, into the darkness. The light has come, though, in the world, People love the darkness rather than the light. So with an unexpected reversal and left to ourselves and our natural selves, our rejection and dismissal of him is an entirely expected response. Thanks be to God that the darkness has not overcome the light, that he has not allowed us to remain in our darkness, in our expected rejection of him, but he loves his sheep to cause them to live in the light. That he is faithful to Peter's pride, his overabundant or over exuberant 
pride in himself, his zeal for the Lord that has no actual trust and humility and faith in Jesus. He doesn't allow him to stay in that. He pursues him and he loves him to the end and brings him to the light. And once in the light, having experienced his grace and his love, lastly now, we'll see kind of all over the rest of this chapter and the places where we've skipped around, Jesus gives an unexpected commandment. I say it's unexpected, but it's really not. Jesus invites his disciples, the subjects of his kingdom, to live their lives under the expected norms and ethics of the kingdom. The ethics of the kingdom and to live like their king. So in some sense, in that sense, it's not expected that he would expect his subjects to live like the king. But it's just the unexpectedness of the kingdom that is still just so surprising. So he says to them in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If I, your teacher and Lord, and Lord could just mean superior, but it's also being used in these days to mean God. If I, your teacher and Lord, am humbling myself in humility and in servanthood, then this is what I want for you as well and how you live with one another. This act of service, this washing of your feet was not a one-time act, but an ongoing reality, an expectation for the kingdom. There are many Christian traditions who assume what Jesus just said in these verses that we just read. uh, These mean that we should actually wash each other's feet ongoingly and regularly. In fact, it's not altogether uncommon to meet Christians who think that foot washing is a third ordinance, like baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot washing. But I don't think that is what Jesus is meaning here. For one thing, it's not a repeated and taught-on thing in like the rest of the New Testament, like baptism and communion are, as well as completely just having lost its symbolic power because of our present day in pristinely clean feet. Like it's not a big deal. It actually isn't that much of an act of humility and service to have like one of you like untie your shoes and take off your sock and then me like pour some water over it. Like that's not, like it's kind of weird and uncomfortable, but it's not like that debasing. But even more than that, if we haven't already seen that Jesus is meaning to use his foot washing as a symbolic pointer to his greater love that is coming on the cross, he'll later explain to his disciples of the kind of lives that he means for them to live. He's saying, do what I have done for you in washing your feet, perhaps maybe in actually washing of each other's feet. But really, here's what I mean, verse 34. Here's what I mean for you in washing each other's feet. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Just as he has loved us, we are to love one another. Just like Jesus looks and acts, his disciples are to look and act like Jesus. Not just by an occasional washing of some people's feet, but by a putting of our own desires to death so that the other 
might benefit. Sacrificial and radically humble love for one another, for his people. Jesus is not saying that we Christians ought to love the non-Christian world less than the Christians in our lives. We'll be known, uh, people will know that we are his disciples of our love for one another. He's not just saying that we should then not love the outside world or something like that, but that our love for the body, particularly a local church, our love is that much more. Not that we love the world less, but that we love the church, his body, more. Like similar to like if I had like a lineup of second graders here, and we're all a bunch of second graders, I can in a very real and emotionally genuine way say I love all of these second graders. But like that one right there, that Caleb Sherman right there, that one's mine. I love that one. Like there is without a second hesitation in just even a moment, I wouldn't give up anything good for myself so that he might uh, flourish. And if it were possible, like, like this, I would take any ounce of suffering from his life and onto mine. With, like, without any second thought, his good, his flourishing means way more to me than my own life and my own desires. And Jesus is saying that this is the way that he has loved the church. He has loved his sheep above and over and against his own life. And that we now as his sheep, therefore, ought to love one another in the same way. Not without a real and genuine love and care for the world. We don't love the world less, but we love each other even more. It'd be a strange and actually pretty meaningless uh, thing for us, I think, to begin just showing up at each other's houses with a bowl and a towel. And just like clean each other's feet. But what are some ways in which that we can live out this ethic of humility, of love, and of service? Certainly in caring for each other's physical needs, I think we do a pretty good job at that. Like when people have babies and when there's a, a need or people are just going through a tough go in their, in their life, I think we're pretty quick to show, each, show up at each other's houses with food and with cleaning I think we do a pretty good job at being hospitable and in welcoming, in, welcoming each other's, uh, into each other's houses around the dinner table, just becoming deeper friends. But husbands, how are we doing in like sacrificially loving our wives and our children around the house, putting our own desires to death and serving our family? Teenagers, you, you younger kids even, are we doing and serving our parents and serving your siblings? That's tough. Other folks in the church, how are we doing at that? Wives, how are we doing in serving our husbands? Not our husbands, your husbands. How are we doing in serving your husbands with honoring and respectful, encouraging words and in pouring into the younger women into this church? How are we doing at that? Single folks, how are we doing it? Carving out time, like carving out hours on these nights of the week that we might serve families in the church, so we might serve teenagers in the church, that we might serve the older folks in our church. How are we doing with that? We can all continue to grow in Christ-likeness, in humility, and in service. And in our gospel communities, in our discipleship groups, are some of those getting to be like a, if I have time this week, if I am not too stressed out this week, then I'll 
try to be there? Are you getting tempted to bail on these and not contribute much because you maybe aren't getting that much out of it or as much as you had hoped? For that matter, is Sunday church attendance not just a huge priority? Certainly not getting here early to meet folks, to get to know folks, to perhaps sit in the back and cry with some folks who have had a difficult week because that's just uncomfortable for me. That's not really conducive to the desires that I have for my evening. I'd rather slip in relatively unnoticed and then get out the door to dinner because it's a bit awkward. You guys, I'm going to keep beating this drum that Sunday evenings, your gospel communities, your discipleship groups are not primarily about you, but putting our own desires to death for the betterment of one another As Paul keeps talking about in Philippians 2, to consider the needs of others to be more significant than my own, like Jesus did. So in your discipleship groups, for some of you, uh, that might mean speaking more often, more openly, putting your own desire not to be known or to look like things are all put together in your life, putting that to death so that you can serve others in showing the good of vulnerability and weakness. I read Sam Albury say this week, he says, I don't need to look good so Jesus can look good. I need to be honest about my colossal spiritual needs so that he can look all sufficient. That's what we need in our discipleship groups and gospel communities. It doesn't do you or anyone else any good to pretend like everything is nice and tidy in your life. But perhaps for others, that might mean, myself included, that we ought to shut our mouth for a little bit and stop monopolizing the time. And that we ought to consider others looking for opportunities to uh, ask good questions and care and encourage, care for and encourage others. This type of knowing deeply, being known deeply, all that's not normal. It's not the expected way of the world. This type of making room in our calendars, making room in our weeks, making room in our budgets for one another for regular generosity, not just generosity and giving towards the needs and the budget of this church, but like carving out places in your budget for uh, generosity towards just the needs that are coming up within your church. I've just been so encouraged the past year and a half of just hearing story after story of some need pops up, some financial need, some uh, just practical need comes up and it gets met like this because our people are just generous with their money. This is incredible. Are generous with their time. Generous of the minutes of the day committed to praying for one another. Of a commitment, of a desire to take and absorb the suffering of you all unto myself. This kind of community, when this happens, when all of us are like this, where I less and less think of the things that I own as my possessions and more and more think of them as our possessions. And I think more or less and less of the things of my life as my business and I think more and more of it is our business. Man, that kind of a community, it just, it's not normal. That's an upside down and attractive kingdom, recklessly loving others as Christ loved us. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we walk out of here this evening, we don't have towels to wrap around our waist. And even if we did, no one would know what in the world we had just put a towel around our waist for. But consider, consider the metaphorical uniform of the servant that we can put on as we walk out of this building. Beloved, how 
Jesus has loved us. How he has loved us to the end. If you are in Christ, now just unleash the love of Christ for you to each other, to the world. Not letting it end in you. And if you have not received his love, if you may perhaps have flat out rejected it, like Judas, wanting nothing to do with it. It's, it's a kingdom that just doesn't make sense to you. Perhaps hear the words of love from Jesus to you tonight. Let your pride break. Let him wash you. Sit and let him wash you in his love and his grace and his forgiveness. Or if you've been a committed servant of Jesus, like Peter, but not in a disciple whom Jesus loved kind of way. But of all the things that you're going to do for him, but rather than just the ways in which he can love you, if his love for you doesn't make up the core of your identity, consider your sin tonight. And then consider the lengths to which God has gone to move heaven and earth to redeem you, to win you, to cleanse you, and to save you for eternity. Don't hustle out of here tonight, but let's just hang around for a little bit. Perhaps go out to dinner with one another and just swim around in the love of God for a bit more this evening. We're going to respond now in thinking through the lengths to which God has gone to save us. We're going to respond in song. Let's respond even in encouraging words to one another as we go from this place with our uniforms of the slave on to serve one another. Father, we pray that we might understand your love for us. It is very difficult to understand this. We are so self-consumed, self-absorbed. Our eyes are down so often. It's hard for us to understand your love for us. Father, we pray that you would keep revealing yourself to us. We pray that we might not only just trust that you love us in some um, intellectual way or theological way, but actually experientially that we might know and understand and feel and receive and the, the very core identity of our existence is being one of your disciples whom you have loved, whom you do love, whom you will love into the end. Father, we are thankful for the ways in which you have shown us humility through your Son, that you have served and that you have cared for. Lord Jesus, we pray that your love might not find its end in us, but that understanding the way of your kingdom, understanding you as its king, who has loved and served, that we might walk out of this place ready to put our own kingdoms to death and that we might serve one another for your good, for, our, for, for your glory, we pray and we thank you for all these things. And the example that Jesus has set for us and in his life and his death and his resurrection, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.